0: Something... something's happening to me.
1: You're turning black and white, and you've got really ugly glasses on.
0: Well, you're suddenly wearing dumpy clothes, and you've got this weird, frowny mouth.
1: There's some kind of chart behind you about... Ebola!
0: Because I'm really worried that I have Ebola.
1: I'm feeling an anxiety that has no obvious locus.
0: Greg, I think I know what this is. I definitely recognize the visual signature.
1: We're trapped in a Roz Chast cartoon?
0: Yes, she's drawing us right now. I feel so... worried. No, 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 don't. Our anxiety is ratcheting up the power of her vision.
1: Right. If we calm down, maybe the cartoon will go away.
0: Okay, deep breath. And let it out.
1: Uh, Oh, wow. I felt my diaphragm catch on something. That's not right. I think there might be something wrong with my diaphragm.
0: No, 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 Greg, no! You're playing right into her hands! Maybe we've
1: always been in a Roz Chast cartoon. Maybe we just didn't know it until now. Our whole existences have been just one small joke on page 34 of The New Yorker.
0: Please, Greg, don't let your thoughts go there. You're just making her smile at her drafting table. I've got to get out! Greg, no! Oh my god, he jumped. Look what you did to him, Roz. I hope you're happy. What am I saying? You're never happy. That's the whole point. If I made you happy, then maybe you'd have to free me. Hey, Ross, you look awesome. Do you want some Necco wafers? No, okay, this isn't working. Let's just hear the interview. And now he dressed up as Eustace Tilly. Again. Colin McEnroe.
2: It's not something I do more than three or four times a year because I'm uncomfortable in a monocle. All right, we are down in the New Haven Studios yet again. We love it here in the New Haven Studios, and we're so excited. Ross Chast is here with us. Uh, So is Jeremy Clough, sometimes uh, known as Peter. He is the manager of media services at the Norman Rockwell Museum. Ross Chast, do I have to tell you who Ross Chast is? She's a New Yorker cartoonist. She's the author of several books, including her award winning graphic memoir, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? Or as I, a person who has had to deal with the end of his parents' lives. Uh, Think about it, PTSD uh, in a binder. Um, Actually, it's a wonderful, wonderful rendering and unbelievably familiar to me about what it is like to deal with your parents at the end of their lives. Um, But then, Roz Chast, so many things about you are familiar to me because I was born in October of 1954. Uh, You were born in November of 1954. We were both only children, I'm basically Roz Chast with no cartooning skills, uh, and and I think also we ha- we shared a sense. I mean, actually, you use in the book the phrase "unhappy childhood," and I think it's not that for either of us that we had unhappy childhoods so much as that we were unhappy children, right? Like nobody was hitting us with a stick or anything like that.
3: Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think you're right. I think I was, you know, sort of uh, I was an, uh, kind of a cranky kid. Well, also, maybe a
2: sense that, like, I was the one who was, like, whispering to you as you were being born. Like, I'd just gotten out of the womb. That was the voice you heard saying, stay in there, stay in there, stay in there. It's really scary out here.
3: No, it wasn't so good in there either. (laughs)
2: Okay. You didn't like it there?
3: (laughs) No, no, no.
2: (laughs) You actually remember not liking it there.
3: Yeah, it was crowded. Right. You know, it was dark. It was hot.
2: (laughs) But there's also this sense, I think, you know, a lot of children have these... I mean, maybe the other children are lying to us, but it seems as though they have these carefree childhoods. They're always
3: skipping. Yeah. A lot of skipping, happy children, singing little songs, skipping. What is
2: with the skipping?
3: I have no idea. Stop with the skipping. Free and easy.
2: Yeah. So you, like at what point, how old were you when you had identified yourself as a worrier, as a person who was worried about things? Do you even remember your first worry?
3: Um I don't remember exactly the first worry but I do remember being about 4 years old and knowing the word anxiety which I thought was pronounced anxiety <laughs> and uh I knew what it was.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean you had an intuitive grasp of it. Whichever. I had a lot of
3: anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Nobody had to explain that to you. No. Yeah. No, not at all. But I think I learned, you know, from the master Right. Uh, or masters, you know. Both of my parents were very anxious people, and you know the kind of culture of anxiety. I don't think they invented it. Uh, you know, they got it from their parents. It's you know the Philip Larkin poem,
2: right? Which we can't, we cannot say that poem on public radio. No, we I, I cannot understand that, cannot. but uh, but we know which poem you mean. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, and in a way, one of the things you do in the book is um, kind of suggest. In, in cartoon form, that that kind of anxiety is – it has like historical roots, right? It goes people in Russia were anxious about getting their throats cut or something like that, and it just sort of kind of keeps going forward.
3: I don't understand why more people aren't anxious, you know, just kind of like <laughs> when I watch the news. It's like earthquake here, you hmm. know, terrorist attack there. Or maybe, they, maybe they are. Maybe yeah. we just don't uh, – you know, but you do uh, – get the feeling yeah. that enough bad stuff goes yeah. on in the world that it's amazing we're not all just mm-hmm. kind of like I'm never going outside again. I'm never going to do anything again because clearly that just adds you know leads to trouble.
2: That's our version of old McDonald. Uh with an earthquake there and a terrorist attack there. Her here on Earthquake, they're a terrorist attack. It's hard to say. By the way, we're live here in the afternoon. If you are a Ross Chast fan and you want to express some uh, deep-felt anxiety to her, uh, that might not even be a really good idea, but our number is 203-776-9677, 203-776-WNPR, if you like to spell with your phone. What's it like when you meet your fans, when you do a book signing or something like that? What do do they say to you?
3: Um, Well, with this particular book Mm. – the the parents' memoir, so many people have gone through this or are going through this, and I also meet a lot of, when I first started doing talks on this book, I was very worried to meet, you know, when I would see people who were, you know, clearly not people my age but people who were a lot older they were like you know 85 or 90 and I thought like I hope that they're not mad at me for writing this book Mm. but on the contrary a lot of them are glad seem glad that you know it's being talked about Mm. and you know they went through it with their parents and um so that was I was happy about that and relieved Mm. you know um and uh yeah usually it's 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 very nice to meet, mm. to meet people who like like the book or like my work.
2: I really like the book, but it did give me a mild case of PTSD just because so many of the things were, I mean, we've all been that through that clean out the parents' apartment with all the weird stuff that you keep yeah. finding.
3: Well, I mean, I, I sort of have a, you know, there's a sort of selfish reason for this that I saw this happen with my parents. Mm. And I think I don't really want this the same exact thing to happen to me. Not Mm -hmm. that I know what to do about it, but I hope that by the time I get to that point, there will be more options, you know? And, uh, you know, who knows whether there will or won't be, but I know that by never talking about it, by pretending that this doesn't exist, Mm -hmm. the situation gets crazier and crazier. Um, I mean, I just had uh, one of my best friends, her mother... uh, uh, about a week ago passed away at the age of 102 Mm -hmm. and she had had a stroke and the doctor at the hospital started talking oh she was in a in a I guess there's such a thing as a semi-coma Mm -hmm. um, which I didn't know but she was in a semi-coma and the doctor started talking to my friend about you know bringing her mom home and physical therapy and speech therapy and my friend just said like you know she just thought, what, what planet are you on? Mm-hmm. This woman is 102. She's been in horrible shape for the last year, and she just had a stroke. Mm-hmm. And she's not speaking. She doesn't recognize me. And she's in a semi coma. And can't we talk about something like making her comfortable? Mm-hmm. Or uh, what are you talking about, speech therapy?
2: I had to do the exact same thing in my mother's case. I mean, she had... Uh, Alzheimer's disease and then she'd fallen and broken her neck and then she was like having this other <laughs> cascading set of things yeah. you know. And, and at a certain point I had to say to the doctor oh no this is like hospice we're doing hospice now yeah. and, and he didn't like that idea he thought we would just like sort of keep intervening And um... oh
3: yeah well I mentioned in my book when my mother was 97 and she really hadn't gotten out of bed in months and uh, the doctor suggested that she have um, a colostomy um, operation and that it wouldn't be any big deal and um, I thought, well, this is... I don't think this is really true because I would, i think that, like, any operation is probably somewhat of a big deal. The person's going to be put under general anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if you have a you know a colostomy if you have part of your intestine taken out chances are you're going to be under general and it's, it's not going to be like a novocaine shot right um and on top of that what happens afterwards with managing that and so i actually went online and i read this is like really hilarious and a cheery conversation <laughs> but I, w- I went online and i read i read various like i have a colostomy operation blogs mm. which is a, such a thing and um and it's not even if you're at a otherwise healthy person in their 30s managing your apparatus is not a nothing thing and I just thought think I'll put my mother through that.
2: Right. Well, and uh, we promise this will turn somewhat cheerier at times, anyway, as we're talking. (laughs) You know, I should mention, I don't know if I made this clear, but that one of the reasons that uh, Jeremy Close, sometimes known as Peter, uh, from the Norman Rockwell Museum is here is because Roz Chas' Cartoon Memoirs is on view at the Norman Rockwell Museum up in Massachusetts now through October 26th. The exhibit is part of the museum's Distinguished Illustrator Exhibition Series. Um, I I just want to go back to one thing that you were saying, because... um, you know just in the same sense that there was i think this completely uh unrealistic um, skipping oriented vision of childhood that we were was peddled to us there there's also sort of a a, a death version of that right there's, oh, there's, yeah. there's and and I just have to tell you one quick story i don't want to hear uh, some more from you but when um when my mother was dying, and my mother was uh, not unlike your parents, particularly in the sense that she was often just kind of unha- generally unhappy about things, and things were kind of never quite right. Um, and so, um, you know how when you're dying, you're supposed to see that light, you know, and you go towards <laughs> the light and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, my mother saw the light, and she didn't like it, and she wanted it turned off. Uh, and she started complaining about the. Light. I'm saying I'm, I didn't want to say, "Mom, it's the, that's actually." this is a good light right you just, like everybody wants the light
3: oh that's funny <laughs> she didn't
2: even like the light well there's this
3: great jack ziegler cartoon he's a wonderful new yorker cartoonist he's been
2: on the show yeah,
3: yeah and um he, the one where like the guy finding that the light at the end of the tunnel is new jersey <laughs> <laughs> he's just running through the tunnel and mm. it's like oh yeah <laughs> so maybe that's what she saw so, you know,
2: you said you hope that there are better options uh, yeah. when you're 90 years old. Um, so, um, you know, Mike Wallace famously asked Woody Allen, do you want to live on in the memories of your fans? And he said, no, I want to live on in my apartment. Uh, but um, so whenever it's, whenever your time comes, like what would be a great option? What would be like? You know, how would you like the, your life, life to run down?
3: Well, I'm. Um... <laughs> I've I've done a little bit of reading about the use of uh, psychedelics mm-hmm. um, at the end of life or in cases of terminal illness, mm-hmm. and um, I'm very interested in that. Um, I just feel like you know there are these other ideas out there that if we weren't so uh, focused on keeping the body alive at all costs, including incredible pain to Mm -hmm. the person and humiliation and pain worse than humiliation because you know what is that compared to you know physical suffering um you know we would just there would be a lot of things that we would be talking about Mm -hmm. and thinking about and uh, and i'm not talking about like yeah um i'm gonna like take this handful of lsd and like trip out you know but something that like there if there was some sort of People could study it and say, you mm. know, what dosage is good? What, you know, what do you do if the person is, you know, having experience that so that's terrible? What is the best uh, setting in which to happen? You know, does this help anybody? What, mm. You know, things like that that we could re- really be talking about something kind of real mm. instead of, you know, these skipping mm. pretend versions of –
2: That sounds great to me. I mean, you and I both lived through pretty much the same era, which was this kind of – included kind of a drug revolution, and I was too scared to take drugs. So, I mean, if I could do that at the end of my life. uh, Yeah. I'd like to be in a rave on a walker. Um, (laughs) And uh, uh, I want to try all those things that I was too afraid to take in in, um, college. Megan from Hamden has called in uh, to talk to Ross Chast. Uh, So uh, let's make that happen. Megan, welcome to the show. Hello. Go ahead. You're on the air.
4: (laughs) Um. Well, my question was about coping with anxiety. Um, I am one of many who's struggled with depression in my life and also some issues regarding, you know, self-confidence and self-image, and that has translated into my relationships with other people. And I find that something that happens is I end up getting a lot of just, anxiety from those issues that get brought up. And if a relationship ends, which for me, it recently did, um, I just sort of go into this mental spiral. Mm. And over the years through therapy, um, I've learned some coping strategies. But, you know, every time it happens, it feels like I'm on the tipping point of basically descending into this vortex of unhealthy thoughts
2: now Megan you do understand that the person you're calling into right now is a cartoonist right yeah Uh, I mean she may not be the most appropriate person uh, but I mean I'm sure she would like to help you in some way
4: oh no 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 I'm not asking for like you know like oh please help me like dial a hotline no what I'm asking is like how does she cope with Uh that like does she find her art to be something that helps or what Megan, Megan,
2: that is a great question. That's a great question. I'm going to throw it over to Roz.
3: Um, I think having a good therapist is important. Um, and if you uh, trust him or her and they, you know, psychopharmacology um, is an option and a necessity for some of us. Mm. And uh, and work, you know, uh, work is really, for me, important.
2: Um, we have just a little – here in the studio a little bar that we press with our paws and a lorazepam comes out. Yeah. Uh, so that helps. You know, I mean, um, Jeremy Cloud, this is a, a time to weave you in in an odd way because, I mean, people think Roz Chast, Norman Rockwell. Roz Chast, Norman Rockwell. What could they possibly have in common? Well, it turns out they have a lot in common, and she was just talking about therapy. One of the things we know about Norman Rockwell now is not only was he in therapy, he was in therapy with Eric Erickson.
5: That's true. That's what brought him to Stockbridge, where the museum is located. And um, it was actually his wife who originally was yeah. seeking treatment. And he would uh, they were living in Vermont at the time, drive her back and forth. And so Stockbridge ended up being a suitable place to live and, and uh, get treatment. And then he explored that himself, was very interested in psychology in his later work. I think you can see that.
2: Right, and so we know from the Deborah Solomon biography, this guy was I mean really different from what we think about him from his pictures. Roz, was that news to you? I mean, when you sort of when you were tapped uh, to be exhibited this way at the Norman Rockwell Museum, did you just think of Norman Rockwell as Mister Happy Thanksgiving? I mean, talk about skipping.
3: Well, oh. I actually had read the Deborah Solomon yeah. um, biography, and uh, so I didn't think of him that way. Mm-hmm. He was really an amazing artist in a lot of ways I mean not just technically but much more complex and um, nuanced than I think a lot of people think of him as you know if you just think of him as like happy Thanksgiving kind of Mm -hmm. you know sort of trite stuff
2: right and and yeah I mean in his art, he was dealing with stuff, and then in his life, it turns out he was like, dealing with even more stuff. We're talking to Roz Chast right now, our number, 203-776-9677. It is not a hotline. She is not able to actually help you with your problems. At least we don't think so. 203-776-WNPR. Although that might be an interesting project is do a show where you and two other cartoonists <laughs> are there, and people could just call in with their problems, and you and Jack Ziegler and you know, one other cartoonist would yeah. be there. And you just give like, advice from cartoonists. Yeah. Um.
3: Well, you just you have to like really lower your expectations. <laughs> like, get them down as low as possible. And then, you know, iced coffee's good yeah. and you know.
2: All right, okay. that's that's the advice for the day. All right. So, we're going to take a little break here. Or we're going to come back with more after the proverbial this. <laughs> And we're back. We're back with Roz Chast, the New Yorker cartoonist, author of uh, many books, including her award-winning graphic memoir, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant, which is about the um, aging uh, and um, institutionalization sounds like so institutional, but, uh, and ultimate uh, deaths of her parents. Um, It's funnier that I just made that sound, however. (laughs) Also with us is Jeremy Clough, uh, manager of the media services at the Norman Rockwell Museum, where Roz Chast's work, and not just the cartoons, and we will come to that uh, are on exhibit. We'll tell you more about the exhibit as we go along here, because uh, there's uh, there's much more up there than just cartoons. Not that cartoons wouldn't be uh, a great way to spend an afternoon. They would for me anyway. You know, it's Roz Chast. I just heard that promo where they're talking about Signetaro and people thinking that she's their best friend. Um, I, I'm not. I've never been under the delusion that Roz Chast was my best friend. But when I started seeing your cartoons because we are of a similar age and a similar temperament I think and I'm sure I, with a, I share with a lot of people the sense oh this is somebody who's doing cartoons about my stuff it's stuff that's that I mean I've never had to have a Roz Chast cartoon explained to me you know like, uh, it's, I immediately know what you're talking about and so even before this book came out with its own special set of uh, of points of reference for people. I mean, you must get that from people. Like, oh yeah, you're my cartoonist. You're the cartoonist who draws about my insomnia or whatever.
3: Yeah, I get that. Um, I mean, I, I heard the Tig Notaro um, little promo mm. there, and I was thinking, well, that's part of I think what we do when you're not just sort of making generic jokes. Um, about, I don't know what, like, two guys sit in a bar. You know, if you're, like, making jokes that are more personal, I think that you do reach people in a different way, you know, yeah. that people do think sometimes that they know you or that they connect with you. And um, uh, I think as long as somebody's not, you know, camping on my lawn or something, <laughs> it's like, oh, that's all right. Yeah. You know?
2: Um. There are some people camping on your lawn right
3: now. Yeah, but it's not because of me. Right, It's because of our lawn. It's Uh, really great. It is a
2: nice lawn. Um, So when you started to... The impulse to do this, the impulse to draw cartoons, probably wasn't necessarily an impulse to reach out and touch people's lives. (laughs) Is there a way that you can describe what the impulse was?
3: Um, I think I always liked cartoons. I always liked it when something made me laugh. Mm. And I think I always drawing my drawings could make me laugh and sometimes Mm. they made other people laugh and uh, that sort of interaction was always really interesting to me even from when I was a little kid and I always drew I always drew from the time I was like you know two or three uh, you know before I was writing I I wanted to draw I think most little kids do but they just sort of stop somewhere along the, the way but I I did start when I was young to notice that I really liked things that made me laugh. I mean, I would make up funny recipes, and I would sometimes, you know, some kid would want, let's go outside and play. It's like, no, let's make up, like, books of funny recipes. <laughs> let's cut, you know, s- stupid stuff out of magazines and make fun of it and, you know, just make jokes and make each other laugh. Uh, so so I always like to do that.
2: And it seems as though, we're going to talk to Sue from Windsor in just a second, but um it seems as though also that you had a sense more than a lot of other cartoonists do that words are funny. I mean, your cartoons often have a lot of words in them.
3: Yes, that's true. That's true. I mean, one thing about New Yorker cartoons that's interesting is that back in the olden days, there used to be a person who was people who were gag writers, and then there were artists. Mm -hmm. Peter Arno I think he probably never wrote any of his own jokes. He bought gags from gag writers. Charles Adams bought gags. Uh, Most of these old guys bought gags from gag writers. And somewhere in the 1960s, this started to change, where the artist and the gag writer became one and the same person. Uh, So, yeah, for me, another thing I love about cartoons is not only is the point of it, you know, to make jokes, but also... Uh, that it is. It combines. It's a combination of words and pictures. And mm. yeah, I mean, I think words are can be really funny. Mm. You know, w- individual words, but also the timing of the whole thing and the way something is said.
2: Looking at one of your New Yorker covers in preparation for the show, I, I, I laughed just at the phrase. Veal cutlet. There's something funny about the phrase veal cutlet. There
3: is something funny. Veal cutlet. Veal
2: cutlet. And you don't hear it so much anymore, too. I think it was was a period term. I don't think you've been in a restaurant in a long time where somebody offered you a veal cutlet.
3: No, no. They call them like veal medallions, (laughs) which I love because I think, like, yes, what's that lovely brooch? It's a veal medallion. Yes, it's
2: it's something I won. Yes, yes. It's a little piece of veal. A
3: little piece of veal, you know, uh, safety pin to my blouse, Ville medallion.
2: Uh, we've got a call from Sue in Windsor. Hi, Sue, you're on the Hi. air.
4: Hi,
6: um, Roz. It's great to talk to you. I so appreciate um, your book. I just want to tell you, my husband and I are going through caring for aging parents right now, and our our best friends are as well. And I gave them a copy of your book. They happened. They moved to New Orleans recently, and it's been so great for the four of us to have it in common um, just to help us sort of vent our frustration and exasperation as we deal with um, all of the stuff that I'm sure you can relate to. And I just so appreciate that you are willing to be honest about how lousy it is to, to be in this position. I mean, it's wonderful to be able to care for your parents on one level, but it's just been so great for the four of us to hear and see someone else say, this stinks. I hate it. I hate the in, the disruption to my life. You know, just the honesty of it is just not lost on us. And we so appreciate it. And I wanted to thank you for that.
3: Well, thank thank you. Um, uh, thank you for letting me know.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I think your book gets at in a really interesting way is that transition to becoming the boss of your parents. Um, although they are, they are, I mean, you are the boss of your parents at a certain point if you have to put them in place into, into a place, capital P, if you have to make these kinds of decisions. You wind up trying to be the boss of your parents, but they don't think you're the boss. And, and the push and pull between those two things, there, is even mo- there are even moments of exhilaration being the boss of the person who was the boss of you for so long, but it's, it's always balanced out by their complete... Anarchy and insidious rebellion, yeah.
3: and it's also just enormously sad. I, and it's sad for them. It's sad for yourself. And you also, you know, become aware in this very profound way that this is the direction that you know want, that you're headed as well. And, you know, it's not like, oh, my poor parents, and this is just terrible, but it won't happen to me. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, this is what happens. This is what happens at the end of life. If you're lucky, you know, if if an anvil doesn't fall out of the sky on you, um, or if you don't like, you know, you're going along in your 50s or 60s and you get some terrible disease and you're, you know, out, Uh, you know, if you are lucky and... Chances are you are going to, especially nowadays, it seems like people are living longer. There's a very good chance that you're going to be living, you know, well into your 80s, if not your 90s, if not 100. And um, those are not, those are years where you just become increasingly dependent on other people, on, you know, what. On society in a certain way, on and on your children, which is really scary, and uh, you know, which is this. There's there's, it, there's a lot of things that it stirs up. I think
2: there's a great little cartoon in the book about why you don't want to live to be 102. That's uh, really I can't. It's, it's visual. I can't really express it, but it really kind of gets at that. So let's talk about something happier. Yes. Can not we talk about something a little bit more pleasant? So let's talk about going up to Stockbridge uh, and going to this wonderful museum. And seeing not just Roz Chas cartoons, uh, Jeremy, but also uh, eggs, right? Eggs and rugs?
5: Eggs and rugs.
2: Yeah. Well, well yes. eggs and rugs, that's like, those are the ingredients yes. to a happy this, this summer afternoon, <laughs> right? Yeah, what else? What is there? <laughs> eggs uh, and rugs? Yeah. So yeah. tell us about the eggs and rocks. She can tell us, but you as the museum guy, you give us kind of a sense. What will we see when we get up there?
5: Well, it's really interesting. I think you're right that people expecting to just see the cartoons are in for a surprise because you really see sort of into the window of, of uh, your home and studio. I actually created a video for the exhibit, and so I had a, a little preview um, about what was to come. So we have some objects of uh, various art, other forms of media that Roz works in, Uh, The Pisanky eggs.
3: Yeah, this is, I've always loved the Pisanky eggs. I loved um, the intricacy, the detail, and the brilliant colors. And I met somebody who taught me the technique. They're not painted, they're dyed. And you work with a, a little tool Uh, where you melt wax and it's like batik you're drawing on the it's just a chicken egg you know regular egg Um, and you draw on the egg with the wax and then when you put it in the dye of course the dye adheres to wherever the wax isn't so you're working sort of in the negative and then you just dip it into subsequent that's a dye going from the lightest shade you go from white your very first dip to like maybe the the first thing will be yellow then white yellow orange red and i just love it i love that you know it's just very mesmerizing for me and uh and they break all the time it's just the way it is um with when you're working with eggs and uh i also do these um uh i guess it's called primitive rug hooking mm-hmm. which is um I do my own designs you can buy these like sort of terrible corny awful kits um where you know there'll be like a design usually some cliched thing like a cat or like fruit or something and and then it comes with pre-cut pieces of yarn but again I met somebody a friend of mine who knew how to do it and I said teach me and um the technique of this is actually very simple. It's just really, you have a piece of burlap which you stretch over a frame and then you're pushing these loops of uh, wool strips through the little, you know, the weave of the burlap. But um, colonists and i guess like pilgrims and people like that they this is where it was invented this is why it's called primitive rug hooking it's a kind of early american folk art because they didn't want to waste anything like they couldn't go to kohl's and pick up a a shirt for like you know 59 cents where you're thinking like i don't get this the fabric costs more than 59 cents how can this shirt be 59 cents but you know every piece of clothing was was valuable so when a shirt got like really tattered and it couldn't be patched anymore uh the women would cut it up into strips you know maybe like a quarter of an inch wide or a third of an inch wide and then they would push it up through the burlap and they would make these these rugs um it's like quilting you know like every they used every piece of everything they had um so anyway i i make these rugs uh and um
2: but they're i mean we should say that both the eggs and the rugs are very much in the mode of his chaus. They're so, my cartoons. I mean yeah. they're
3: not like some weird deviation or something. They're they are uh you know I haven't like suddenly decided yes a bowl of fruit is exactly what I've always wanted to <laughs> you know spend hours and hours painting this bowl of fruit. No. Um they're my cra- they're my characters. I mean I use my uh they my stuff trans- happens to translate very well to these mediums. I've tried other things that it doesn't work quite as well. But the, mm. these particular things you know, and it's also color, you know, and I love love working with color. So uh, that's that's a part of the fun of it.
2: I, I'm looking at a picture of um, a hand-hooked rug that features cans, uh, a can of carrots looking yeah. over at a can of beans. You have kind of a thing about cans, I right? I do, I do. Yeah.
3: I love cans. I love can labels. Uh, I really, really like that and I'm not sure why but I like I like labels in fact the thing that I'm sort of really obsessed with right now is um, Japanese matchbox labels from the 1920s to the 1940s and I don't even want to tell you how many hours I've spent you know trawling eBay for I don't want to own any of them because you know one thing I have I learned from the experience of cleaning up my parents apartment was like I don't want more stuff Uh, but you know I, I just like collect the jpegs hmm. and then make arrangements out of them and it's nuts it's totally nuts i've spent probably easily a couple of hundred hours on this like stupid mania which i have no idea where it's going to go but maybe it'll go someplace i don't know
2: well i mean back to the, the other thing about the can labels too is they are things where someone has gone to some trouble oh, yes to ingratiate this product with you with oh, your it's eyes
3: beautiful i mean sometimes these well my rules my I have a collection of can, of these cans, and my rule is you, they still have to be available in the supermarket, although occasionally somebody will send me a can, and it's so great that I have to break my rule. But especially the older ones, it'll be like this bowl with like canned potatoes for some reason, which is like the most revolting thing I can think of. I mean, <laughs> why <it's, laughs> p- potatoes in a can is disgusting. I mean, you have to admit it. And the water that the potatoes are in... It's just nasty. Mm. Uh, But anyway, the labels, sometimes you'll have this, you know, and the artist, some anonymous artist made this beautiful label. And, you know, the potatoes were arranged just so in like a blue bowl with like fluted edges. And they chose like exactly the lettering. I don't know. I just really um, like it a lot. So, yeah. I think it's
2: healthy to have a love of everyday things. You know. Um yeah,
3: you've got to as I said, keep your expectations low. Right. You're not gonna get that Brock. Right. You know. No. That Edward Hopper painting? No. Probably not.
2: Um what I've fallen what I've realized lately that I have an appreciation of, and I talk about it every time I come down here, because I go to this coffee shop next door and you get your coffee. And you know those sort of corrugated they're not corrugated, those trays where you they have little holes where you press yes, the coffee yes, into. Yes. And the hole is resist the coffee cup just a little bit so that you jam it in there. Yes. Yes. Those are great. I like in, great. Aren't they great?
3: Yeah, they are great.
2: People just, before they existed, people just walked around with brown stains all over themselves. Yes, yeah, scalded. Carry. Big yeah.
3: blisters of scalding. <laughs> and, you yeah. understand. Yes, yes. yes. It's and, a very, that's a nice piece of engineering. Right. There. Some
2: inventor was down in the basement every night. Yeah. You know, his wife is upstairs saying, Are you coming? No, I'm almost there. I've almost got this. Yes, you yes. You know, yes. and it's going to work. Yeah, I know no, it's, it's work.
3: not. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> yeah. But it
2: does. It's one of those yeah. things that works. It actually yeah. is. A, thing that makes us happy. So, um, you know, in terms of shaping that sense of humor that we're also familiar with from you, um, growing up, who did you think was funny? Did you watch television? Did you watch movies? Did you, I mean, like what made you laugh as a little kid?
3: Oh, when I was a little kid, Mad Magazine. Yeah. Oh my God. I loved Mad Magazine as a kid. Uh, It was so irreverent and it made fun of these ads. And I think it really sort of uh, taught a lot of us of our generation, like if you didn't think these ads were stupid to begin with, now you really saw them, you know. I mean, I remember seeing there was some ad for, like, it was making fun of Chase and Sanborn Coffee, but they called it Cheese and Sandbag. <laughs> and when I was a kid, I just thought that was, like, I could just think of that by myself and just start laughing, like, mm. Cheese and Sandbag. That's really, you know, I don't
2: know. I was like I, 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 th- I look at, old. I've mentioned this before on the show, I really did regard Mad Magazine, once again, we had... the Childhood of the same era is this kind of almost Promethean secret that I was being conferred upon me. That because you know we grew up in the Eisenhower and Kennedy eras where you you really weren't invited to question things very much. Right. And right. so when you picked up Mad Magazine and started reading it, basically they said, you know all this stuff, it's all crap.
3: It's it's so <laughs> stupid, and the people who believe that this is real, they're stupid. They're really, <laughs> and I think that that was like it wasn't just that it was crap. It was like, it was very pointed. It was like, if you don't see through this, you are really, you're just, you're brain dead. And, uh, I, I just loved that. I also love Charles Adams. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I don't, I didn't really discover him in, my parents were New Yorker subscribers, Mm. but, you know, when I was a little kid, I would pick up the magazine and it was kind of off-putting because I, I would look at the cartoons, but most of them I didn't quite get and it was very text heavy. Um, but, When I was young, when I was about mm, nine, ten, my parents used to go to, uh, in the summer, they would go with a contingent of Brooklyn school teachers up to Ithaca, New York to take, they would go to Cornell University. I'm not quite sure, like, what, why Ithaca, but this whole group of Brooklyn school teachers, most of whom did not have children, um, I was an exception. They they were like my parents' old friends. They would go up. They would live in cheap student houses, and they would go during the day. They'd go to concerts. They'd go to lectures, and sometimes they would just be – my my parents would want to be with their friends, and they would, like, park me in the browsing library um, at uh, – there was a student center there called Willard Strait. And this browsing library had a section of cartoon books, mm. and I spent – Many hours there, and I really fixated on the Charles Adams books Monster Rally, Adams and Evil, Black Mariah. Uh, um, They were just so hilariously funny Mm -hmm. to me. So, and again, something a little bit like Mad Magazine, something a little bit, you know, subversive and, but cheery, Mm -hmm. you know. They weren't like, it wasn't like, you know, Society must die because, you know, it was. It was just like this is really this like happy family stuff. is – This is. Oh, I said a bad. bad That's all right. All right, um, we're all friends here. Okay. Yeah. Well, you can beep it or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and I loved it. I mm-hmm. loved it.
2: The um, you know, th- those books were. We're gonna have to take a break here, but um, those books, Some of those books were around my house too, and and there was something. Simultaneously subversive and. Reassuring you them, about You them.
3: had them around your house. Yeah, see, my, par- d- my
2: parents had a couple of them. Yeah, my, uh. I'm sure they were my father's. And, I, like, I do remember the really famous uh, Adams cartoon of the movie theater where everyone is weeping Yeah, you know, copiously. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't see what's on the screen. You just see the audience, and they're all yeah. weeping, except there's this kind of Uncle Fester kind of guy yeah. who's smiling. He's cackling, you know, yeah. whatever it yeah. is that everybody else is crying about. Yeah. He's loving it. All right, so we're going to take a break. We're going to uh, come back. With, boy, this show is zooming by, with Roz Trass and Jeremy Clough. We'll tell you more about what's up at the Norman Rockwell Museum and other stuff.
0: Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown, Jonathan McPants, and me, Kyone Wolf, with mega help from Alex Dubin. Thanks also to Gina Matruda and Tucker Ives, back at the mothership. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Zippy the Pinhead. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff worrying about the long-term health effects of truffle oil, visit our website, WNPR.org slash Tomorrow, we're resharing our show about dragons. And now... Back to Colin.
2: Yeah, for reasons that would be so complicated to explain that I won't even try. We have to tape a different show tomorrow at one. So, but we can't put it on the air, not at that time. So we're gonna, we did a great show about dragons. We thought it was a great show about dragons uh, a few months ago, and so we're going to do that instead. So you will know a lot more about dragons. Uh, today uh, we're talking to Ross Chass, uh, legendary New Yorker cartoonist, author of uh, many books, including most recently her award-winning graphic memoir, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? Also with us, Jeremy Clough. He, he's the manager of media services at the Norman Rockwell Museum, where, in fact, uh, Ross Chass' work and life, uh, are kind of on exhibit. Uh, Roz Chaff's Cartoon Memoirs is on view at the Norman Rockwell Museum now through October 26. Uh, it's a great, a beautiful drive up there uh, and uh, you should just do it. Uh, the exhibit's part of the museum's Distinguished uh, distinguished Illustrator Exhibition Series. Um, and since, since we're pausing on that, I'd like to ask you both a little bit about that notion. So, you know, I think people look at cartoonists and say, well, they're cartoonists as opposed to artists. Do you think of yourself as, as a good artist?
3: Um, I don't think I'm a terribly good draftsman, no. Mm. Uh, I think I'm really limited, in fact. Uh, <laughs> try, <laughs> and I think I'm getting better. Um, but yeah, I think um, I have a lot of limitations.
2: Although, I mean, one of the measures of an artist is can be, did they introduce us to an entirely new visual signature? And you've absolutely done that, right? I mean, there's, there, there just wasn't anything that looked anything like what yeah. you do.
3: I think I I have my own style.
2: Yeah, Um, Jeremy, is there anything you can say about how the museum decided that Roz Chast uh, uh, was one of the people you wanted in this series?
5: Well, we had done a show about ten years ago, uh, New Yorker cover exhibition, Mm -hmm. which Roz was a part of, and I guess that's where we made the first connection with you. And uh, you know, that was went over so well, and we've you know we know the crowds that come through; they Mm -hmm. enjoy laughing at Rockwell's art. Mm -hmm. So humor is very much a part of our you know, everyday scene in, in a good way, you know, I mean, people are, they're kind of taking a breath and, la- you know, enjoying themselves, um, so I think there's a, the connection that, we, and you've talked about it, Roz, uh during the course of this exhibit, is that um, it's sort of a everyday moments that mm. have been elevated into something extraordinary, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, you have a, a different take, but I, I think there's, there is a through line, you know, from Rockwell, to you.
3: Well, I think uh, Bob Mankoff um, had said something in some interview about uh, that one, one thing that humor does is it takes things that are little and makes them big, um, but it also takes like big things and makes them kind of little. And I think that's kind of funny. Thought to think
2: about. Um. William Hamilton one time said to me that part of the um, humor of some cartoons, he was talking about his own cartoons, was the tension that exists between the effort that went into drawing something uh, about such a flimsy concept. Um, that you, just the work that you that he that it took for him to to make the picture that went with this kind of this little idea was uh, was he, he thought sort of some of the some of the funniness of the cartoon. Um, I'm not inviting you to. Huh. A, a, to agree with that sentiment. I don't think it really applies to your cartooning, but it's sort of, it is that, yeah. that same kind of thing in a way. Um, so um, I want to just sort of go back to sort of uh, uh, influences that shaped you a little bit. I mean, did you laugh at television and movies? And oh, stuff like I that did. As a kid? You yeah. know,
3: when I was a little kid, um, I mean, I watched all those cartoons when I was a kid. I'd love to, I, I have a very vivid memory of being on the couch and, you know, where, when my, my uh, ankle hit the edge of the sofa cushion mm-hmm. and And I was sort of waiting for, like, the point where, like, my knee bent, where the sofa cushion bent, and it hadn't gotten to that point yet. Uh, And I always – I watched those, like, horribly violent cartoons that I know, you know, Ren and Stimpy on The Simpsons (laughs) are all based on. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love – I love The Simpsons, and I really love the Ren and Stimpy cartoons because they are exactly like the cartoons that we watch. You know, these animals were always getting, like, flayed alive or, like, an anvil would drop on them and a the steamroller would go over them, and, you know, they'd be set on fire and, like, the cigar would explode and they'd be like a black skeleton, and um, and then, you know, suddenly, miraculously, they'd be fine. Uh, it, but that's, you know, that all that stuff, I think. I grew up on.
2: I think also, you know, the, um, the Warner Brothers, the Looney Tunes cartoons were very, they were kind of modernist in a way that they were sometimes very aware of the fact that they were cartoons. Oh,
3: totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And a lot of the jokes that they made, you know, I didn't even see them. I didn't even get them until I was older. And, yeah. You know, sometimes I watch like old Betty Boop cartoons on YouTube and I'm like, oh, my God, they got away with a lot. <laughs> Uh, but I also watched sitcoms. I mean, I remember going through a phase where I just thought like Bewitched was, you know, Green Acres, that these mm-hmm. things were just the bee's knees, you know. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you get to an age where you watch it and you think, I hate life. I hate people. <laughs> I hate, you know, this planet. I hate this universe. This is just, you know, the whole thing. But, you know, at when I was about nine, you know, Bewitched was great.
2: Yeah. I used to watch uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle with my father, and he would laugh at completely different jokes yes. from what I laughed at.
3: Yeah, well, how were we to know that, like, you know, Boris Badenoff was, you know, based on Boris Goodenov, or, um I mean, I remember that um, there was a little supermarket in Brooklyn that my mother used to go to, and this supermarket was just, like, the grimmest, darkest, horriblest old Brooklyn supermarket place And it was called the Brothers Chermarinsky, but my mother always called it the Brothers Karamazov. You know, there are jokes that parents make that you don't get until you're older. Oh, absolutely.
2: I I, I love the portrait of your parents in in, uh, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant. And it, it does... You know, uh, once again, the, uh, I was talking about this recently about the sort of the greatest generation, right? And and um, I think
3: they were before that. They even. might have been a little bit. Yeah, they were both born in 1912. Oh yeah, well yeah, yeah
2: well sure. what what I noticed with my parents, who are pretty much of a similar generation, I was also the child of somewhat older parents, um, was that they had kind of had this attitude of like. You know, we went through the Depression in World War II, so just don't bother us for about 20 years.
3: Yeah, like, it was really just – it was, you know, put up or shut up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for my mother, a lot of – if you had, like, too many problems, it was like – it was because you were staring at your navel, you know. <laughs> and it was like, stop staring at your navel, mm. you know. So, uh, you know, they had a very different – it was a very different take. If you If you had a roof over your head and you had food and you had clothes – Shut up. (laughs) Um. (laughs) So many of
2: your cartoons seem to be about having a mother, but also about being a mother. Are you in a constant struggle not to be
3: a certain kind of mother? I think I, well, I think you're always, as a parent, you're always in a constant struggle to not be... Like the kind of mother you wouldn't want, and the kind of person that you don't want to be. If that's just like a general, you know, state of mind, it, 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 not even just a parent. You know, you're always. I mean, I feel like I'm always in a struggle to not be a person that I don't, I don't want to be. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, I think when I had children, it, I was very aware that I wanted to be a different kind of parent. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, what kind of? Uh, we only have two minutes left, but so. Uh, When they do their version of, can't we talk about something more pleasant, how do you think they'll depict you?
3: Well, I told my daughter, everything is material, you (laughs) know, and I don't have a leg to stand on here as far as saying, like, anything is, you know, private or don't say this or don't say that. You know, really, everything is material, and feel free to use it, you know, do what you want Mm -hmm. with it, so—
2: uh, that's a great attitude. Um, you may come to regret it someday, but it's a great attitude. Oh, I regret
3: yeah. it already, but, you know, what can I do? <laughs>
2: I regret it already sounds like the title of the next <laughs> Roz Chast collection. Uh, so many more things I would have loved to have asked you, but we really are kind of running out of time here. I want to, first of all, thank Roz Chast for coming all the way to New Haven. I want to thank Jeremy Clough, who's the manager of media services at the Norman Rockwell Museum, for getting Roz Trast, uh to New Haven. Uh, and, once again, remind you that uh, not only is the memoir Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant uh, – available and ready to Guide you through the inferno that you might be walking through pretty soon with your parents or maybe as that parent walking through a different kind of inferno. But you can also go up to the beautiful Norman Rockwell Museum and the beautiful Berkshires now through October 26th and see that wonderful exhibit, Rothschild's Cartoon Memoirs. I want to thank uh, everybody, especially our friend here in New Haven, uh, Jonathan McPants, who's been on the board today. Uh, Lydia Brown produced this show. We'll be back tomorrow with dragons. Actually, I'll be doing something completely different. I won't be talking about dragons, but you just won't know what I'm talking about.
0: Why
1: were all the hoity-toity art historians so crazy about this junk when Norman Rockwell was just making these wonderful, wonderful pictures, making these wonderful pictures... Wolfie, you still stuck in that Roz Chess cartoon? Yeah... You want me to break you out?
0: No, pencil gray actually looks pretty good on me, but of course, not that good.